Hello. Welcome to another episode of Students Talk Security, a podcast series at the Notre Dame International Security Center. My name is Benjamin Earhart. I'm a senior at the University of Notre Dame, studying mechanical engineering, and I'm an undergraduate fellow with the Notre Dame International Security Center. With me today is retired Navy fighter pilot, admiral, and fellow podcaster, Admiral James Winnefeld, aka Sandy. Admiral, welcome. Nice to be here. Good to be with you tonight. I want to start by giving our listeners a chance to get to know you and learn about the exciting story that your military career has been. You started your naval and fighter pilot career through an ROTC program at Georgia Tech, like the one we have here at Notre Dame. What inspired you to take that first step and pursue military service? Well, you know, my father was a Navy pilot before me, and I grew up watching Living Vicariously Through His Eyes. And even though I was kind of a rebellious teenager, you know, I always kind of had in the back of my mind, well, you know, this is an option. Mm-hmm. And so because I wasn't totally sure I wanted to, to to do this, I turned down the Naval Academy and went through the ROTC program at Georgia Tech because I felt like, you know, I'd never quit the Naval Academy. If I went there, that would be kind of really bad. And there was probably some kid that really, really wanted to go to the Naval Academy. And if and if I went through the ROTC program, I wouldn't feel too bad about leaving that if I, if I wasn't happy. Well, as it turned out, not long, even before I went to Georgia Tech, I saw these F-14s flying around in Virginia Beach, Virginia. And I went, you know, that looks pretty cool. I think I might want to stick around and do that. So so that's how I literally went, ended up going to Georgia Tech. I had never been really to Atlanta before. That actually kind of leads in pretty nicely to, to my next question there. You, you talked about seeing F-14s. That's mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of a, a big inspiration for being a fighter pilot. Was there anything else that really drew you to that career path specifically? Well, I was interested in aerospace engineering. And uh, so flying was was a natural thing. And to me, the sort of epitome of being a pilot in the Navy was to be a fighter pilot in the Navy. And then seeing those F-14s flying around, it just seemed like, you know, it would be a lot of fun to start my sort of professional life. I wasn't sure if I was going to stay in the Navy, but starting mm-hmm. my professional life as a fighter pilot, it just sort of seemed like the ultimate in motorsports. Yeah, <laughs> except the road trips are longer and the pay is not as good, but it was really a lot of fun. Yeah, it sure sounds like it. One of those fun experiences you've had through being a fighter pilot mm-hmm. uh, is getting to attend and then be an instructor at Navy Fighter Weapons mm-hmm. School, which an avid moviegoer might know as mm-hmm. Top Gun. Uh, could you kind of share a bit about your your Top Gun experiences, both as a student and then as an instructor? Sure. Uh, the whole theory behind Top Gun certainly back then, and it's extended into a little bit of a different model now, but essentially the same thing is to train the trainer. You go to Top Gun as a student. In my time, it was as a in your first tour as a fighter pilot, your first squadron, you get selected. I'm going to give you your dream shot, Maverick, you know, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's literally true. You know, I got a chance to go and you're expected to sort of get a graduate degree there and and being a fighter pilot and then go back to your squadron and be sort of the expert to train the rest of the crews. And that's literally how it worked. It was five weeks of very intense academics and flying, a lot of fun. And then I was very fortunate later on after after that tour to go back as an instructor, which was yet another level. It's like getting your PhD and being a fighter pilot, where you're having to not only be very, very good in the air, but also extremely good at debriefing these very complex three-dimensional spaghetti fights with perfect recall, not only what happened, but why it happened. Mm. And then on top of that, teaching other people to be able to do that. So it was a really intense uh, experience that was one of the best cultural experiences I've ever had because we we inmates ran the asylum 
the young pilots were sort of in charge of that thing. And we really held each other to high standards in that very special place. So it was a lot of fun, very rewarding professionally. That's a really awesome experience. Only few people may know that you actually were in Top Gun, the original Top Gun, as a pilot. And could you kind of share what that ex experience was like? When did that happen? Were you at Top Gun at the time? Were you an instructor now? Yeah, I was an instructor at Top Gun when the movie was filmed. They say everybody's famous for 15 minutes. You know, I've got my name uh, in the in the credits at the end of the movie, the first Top there you Gun go. movie. There you go. It was sort of interesting at two levels. The flying was not all that innovating because it was hard with the technology of the day for them to capture the sort of violence of you know, high G maneuvering and stress of air-to-air -air combat. They kind of captured it, but it wasn't as, as good as the second movie. But what was really interesting is watching them make this movie on the ground because we would be a spectator to when they were shooting a, a particular scene and, and we'd be like, these guys are idiots. This is never going to work. <laughs> and, then, and then you see it on the big screen. It's like, wow, these guys really know what they're doing. So it was a good lesson in humility. There are people who are experts in things you don't know about, and, and maybe they know more than you do. <laughs> it was a, a, a heck of an experience to, to see how that helped Navy recruiting, to see what we were doing up on the screen. It was really interesting also to see the second movie come out. And as you, as you mentioned, I, I thought that they did a really nice job with the second movie. There are if, if you were steeped in that business, there are some cringeworthy moments where you go, eh, okay, they had to do that for the audience. Uh, the, the example I use most often is for hopefully all your people have seen this movie. You know, when they're dodging these radar guided missiles, they're putting out flares. Well, you'd never put out flares to decoy a radar guided missile. You use those for infrared guided missiles. But, you know, you'd put out chaff, but you can't see chaff. So for the audience of this film to see that these guys are doing evasive maneuvers and putting out all these countermeasures, you'd have to do flares. Okay, I can forgive them for that. And what they did really well better than the first movie was capture the the, the real intensity of being under uh, G-forces. You know, you can see Maverick's face, you know, distorted and all that. Yeah. And, and, you know, when you think about flying the airplane, not hitting the ground, managing, you know, navigation, your weapon system, keeping your eye peeled for bad guys, not running out of gas, and you're doing all of that under six and a half Gs while you're flying down a canyon, that really captured sort of the intensity of doing that business. I took film classes in high school, so filmmaking is kind of a side passion of mine. I was just amazed with the difference between the first movie and the second movie for that very reason that you shared, being able to convey more clearly the forces that the pilot, co-pilots, the wingmen are, are experiencing mm -hmm. in the cockpit there. So I really appreciate your, your thoughts on that, as well as your insight into some of the movie magic and where if you pull back the curtain, things might be a little different in real life. Now that we've kind of set the table, identified some of, but certainly not all of, your amazing credentials, uh, let's jump into the meat of this discussion. We're obviously facing down two great powers <laughs> as the 21st mm -hmm. century progresses, uh, and there are plenty of dangerously tense friction points uh, that have been that have caused some deterioration and stability in the last year around the world. Mm -hmm. uh, starting with Russia, what are your immediate reactions to the most recent series of events in Ukraine? Uh, Vladimir Putin has really boxed himself into a corner. It's interesting because if you if you look at the spectrum of what a na a nation's leader can be and experience, if you are a completely autocratic leader, you have total control. If you have internal opposition in your country, you just shoot people. Uh, you can do whatever you want. If you're a democratically elected leader and things aren't going well for you, well, there's something called an election. And you know, when you're done, you go off and work at a think tank or whatever it is that politicians do. But 
Vladimir Putin's in a very interesting place because he doesn't have that total impunity that you might think. Uh, he does have internal political pressures. And if he's getting you know, nailed from his left, he can kind of handle that, just throw people in prison or throw them off of 40-story buildings or whatever. But he's getting nailed from the right now. And the only thing he knows how to do is to escalate uh, mm -hmm. because he has to keep that faction to his right flank out of his knickers on that. And so it's it's a tough place for him to be. He is not the kind of guy who's going to compromise because compromise to a totalitarian or authoritarian leader looks like weakness. And that can be fatal for one of those guys. So he's really put himself in a tough spot. And it's going to be very interesting in the coming weeks or months as to uh, whether which track he chooses. Is he actually going to try to find a face saving way out of this where he can keep political power in Russia? One of the things that we don't like, but is actually working in our favor here, is that he controls the information environment inside Russia. So if he wants to claim victory, the Russian people will believe him mm -hmm. <laughs> if, he, no. if he, you know, finds some way or he could escalate. He could uh, escalate outside Ukraine. He can escalate inside Ukraine. I think we're a long way away from a nuclear weapons thing, but uh, there are a lot of nasty things that Vladimir Putin can do if he get, feels like he's boxed into a corner. So it's a dangerous time. We can only hope that cooler heads prevail. But if you look at the, the variables around which a negotiation would be structured, you know, do you give him any territory? Do you reduce sanctions on Putin? What about war crimes? What about rebuilding Ukraine? What about Ukraine's security future? Is it either a part of NATO or not a part of NATO or with bilateral alliances? None of those things add up right now to anything that could be a successful negotiation. So it really is a dangerous time. What would a hypothetical U.S. response to a tactical nuclear detonation in Ukraine likely be? You know, as, as devastating as it is to consider that, we have to maybe consider that. What would that look like? Well, you know, it's, it's pure speculation on my part. There are a lot of people who are saying, oh, then we would have to go in with a robust military response. I'm not so sure about that. You don't necessarily want to take that bait. We have a lot of other things that we can do to Russia on the sanction side that we haven't touched yet. There's the sort of so-called nuclear option for sanctions where you cut them off from the SWIFT banking system, if any of your econ majors are listening. And that is sort of like the kiss of death for your economy. And uh, and if, if you show them that we are willing to respond asymmetrically, we are not going to fall for your nuclear uh, weapons thing. And, and you now are a pariah for decades for having used mm -hmm. nuclear weapons. And in the meantime, we're just going to make you suffer even more. But, but it really does depend on the scope and scale of what he might do in that regard. And I also I want to just reiterate that I think there's a, a lot more rungs on the escalation ladder before he does that, because he knows how, how serious that would be. Mm -hmm. Maybe he does a nuclear test inside Russia just to say, hey, remember, I'm not bluffing. He could do a lot of other things before he resorts to that option. I see. One concern raised about the U.S.'s support for Ukraine at home in particular is the risk that sharing so much military aid depletes our own weapons stockpiles. Um, another risk that has been discussed in the past has been the intelligence sharing could lead to escalation, moving up those rungs when the U.S. shares intelligence with Ukraine. What is your response to those concerns when we have more than just Russia to be worried about right now? Sure. One of the things that has been neglected and is a natural human tendency is munitions procurement. When you think about all of the different factors there, and I'll just point at Congress right now, but the services 
the same way. A congressperson would rather have, they're more interested in having the F-15 squadron in their district because there are families that are spending money and, mm-hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff yeah. and, and buying weapons that just sit in a, in a magazine someplace that are not made in their district. They're made someplace else. They're not interested in that. So, so there's not a lot of political and the, and the services are the same way. If, if I'm going to buy another F-35 or I'm going to buy 10 Tomahawk missiles, well, the F-35 is kind of like, you know, part of my identity, right? And and so there are natural human tendencies. And I think I know for a fact that that the department and Congress and the rest of the leadership are coming around to the fact that we have got to get serious now about replenishing these stocks. And it's not as easy as it sounds. You just don't turn that pipeline on mm-hmm. with a switch. Uh, some of these parts get ob- obsolete in that if you have a particular microprocessor and a particular missile and you're not making that missile anymore, you may not be able to get your hands on that microprocessor anymore. So it's a complicated thing. On the intelligence piece, it's very interesting because uh, when you look at what has happened, this is an interesting projection onto Taiwan. Uh, what President Biden did was he had to decide between direct military support to Ukraine or indirect military support to Ukraine. And he chose indirect because you know Russia is a nuclear armed power. And if we get ourselves involved or NATO involved, then you're upping the risk of a direct confrontation between us and Russia, which you want to avoid. So he chose indirect support and has been trying to manage that fine line of how much indirect support do you provide before you've actually really provoked Russia into considering it to be direct support. And so among those various support things are some of the weapons that we've sent and also potentially, you know, uh, can't say for sure, but intelligence support that we've given to the Ukrainians that has mm-hmm. allowed them to use those weapons. So I think they're managing that line. And you just have to keep in the back of your mind that no matter the political party, the number one job by far of any president is to make sure the United States doesn't get nuked. <laughs> so they're not going to take a chance there. And that's that's the kind of internal dynamic here that you're seeing unfold. But they're going to push as hard as they can against that line because what Russia has done in Ukraine is a war crime. It's wrong. Mm-hmm. And we cannot let it stand. Exactly. Uh, one last question on Russia. Uh, you commanded the Navy Sixth Fleet at one point during your career. That's uh, based out of Naples, Italy. Mm-hmm. Did you have much interaction with Russian naval counterparts? And based on your experiences, do you assess that there's some way for our long-term relations with Russia to be improved? Or do you think they're permanently frayed so long as Putin remains in power? Well, to your latter question, I think as long as Vladimir Putin remains in power, or somebody like him is in power, it's going to be really tough to recover this relationship. They have done war crimes from the top of Russia's political uh, entities uh, all the way down to the lowest level of being a sergeant. And they've essentially done, I'm guessing, a trillion dollars worth of damage to Ukraine. The current estimates are kind of in the hundreds of billions, but it's at the end of the day, it's going to be. So how do you how do you recover a relationship from there? It's going to take a long time. Right. Uh, regarding your first question on interactions with the Russians, I had a lot of interactions, both as the Sixth Fleet commander and simultaneously I was a NATO commander with a, a headquarters in Lisbon, Portugal. And my headquarters is on a hill above the Tagus River, which leads leads into uh, Portugal from the Atlantic. And one day I was standing there and the Russian warship Moskva sailed by going up the river for a port visit in Lisbon. And I wanted to make sure that the Russians knew I was there and that NATO was there. And, you know, we weren't going to just sit and watch this happen. So I literally had my guys call down and I invited myself to lunch. And they said, yeah, sure. 
To me, lunch was sitting around a table and having a serious discussion. To them, it was standing around a table with pitchers of vodka and getting, you know, drunk as as anything. Huh. So I so I politely told them, I said, I'll drink one glass of vodka with you out of respect. And mm-hmm. you know, we you can do whatever you want. I'll sit here and drink water and we can have a discussion. They went, okay. And they proceeded huh. to drink all of the vodka on the table and they were looped when we were done. Well, you know, zoom forward now to this year. And uh, we all watched as you at the as the Russian ship Moscow was sunk by two Ukrainian fairly rudimentary cruise missiles. Yeah. And my impression of that ship was not very good back then. And of course it sank. <laughs> so it was kind of huh. rewarding in a way for me to be able to say, Hey, I was on that ship uh, uh, many years ago, probably back in 2008 or 2009. I was going to say, there you go. Diplomacy yeah. by vodka is, is probably not something that you get very often. Moving to China, what are the keys uh, to the U S keeping pace with advances uh, in Chinese naval capabilities, which of course have steadily improved over the last few decades? Yeah, and I would say it's not just their naval capabilities, it's their military capabilities across the board. And so, uh, yeah, they're building a lot of ships and they're they're pretty good ships. They're better than the Moscow, I can tell you that. But they also have a lot of anti-ship missile capability. Mm-hmm. And you have to remember, you know, we last time we faced that kind of a threat was when USS Stark was hit by an Exocet missile back way back when in the Arabian Gulf. And in the meantime, we've been fighting this counterinsurgency campaign with complete maritime supremacy, nobody challenging us out there. And it is getting harder and harder and harder in that environment to survive. Let's just face the truth. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things that we have to be doing. One is, yes, at at what I call the first and second horizons of innovation, continuing to try to make our current plan work, which means going in there with all of our stuff and duking it out with them and, and winning with military overmatch. And that requires, you know, incremental improvements to our systems. It also requires step functions, uh, improvements to our systems. But at some point, you kind of have to go, maybe we need to get to the third horizon of innovation, which is rethinking the whole concept. And mm. and there's some really serious work that needs to be done there. And I think um, even though the, the parallels between Ukraine and China are not exact, there's a good lesson in there. And that is the the, uh, the, the way we took on Russia and Ukraine was using all instruments of U.S. national power. We used diplomacy to keep the you know, all of our allies and partners on board. We used economics uh, very effectively so far as, as sanctions. It's taking time for those to take effect, but they are taking effect. Mm-hmm. We used the military instrument of power, again, indirectly. Uh, we used information power. Remember that the intelligence community working with the White House re- uh, released some fairly sensitive intelligence that didn't stop the invasion, but it kept the the allies uh, on board by kind of revealing the truth of, mm-hmm. of what Russia was up to. Well, we need to do that same sort of whole of government approach with China, not necessarily targeting the Chinese military, although you still have to do that, but targeting what, what is colloquially known as the mandate from heaven. Uh, you know, uh, what do the, does the Chinese leadership fear the most? Well, they fear what any autocratic government fears the most, and that is their own people. Because when you have a regime change in the United States, it's called an election and the losers go work in think tanks, as we said earlier. Mm-hmm. And when you have a regime change in, in China, something completely different happens. And you see it every day with their control of their population, facial right. recognition, control right. of the internet. And so we we need to exploit that any way we can. And that's what sort of plan B, as it emerges, will probably have to look like. Very good work to be done there with a talented Notre Dame graduates going into the military, going into the State Department, going into government and making a difference. Yeah, there you go. You know, you talk about we need to be able to bring up our innovative capabilities, move to that third horizon of innovation. One of those tools we could utilize, I think, uh, is 
revitalizing American manufacturing. And the the hot topic these days in that area is semiconductors and kind of now this mm-hmm. give and take kind of this competition yeah. and now reinvestment in semiconductor manufacturing uh, in the U.S. And I myself will be heading into a manufacturing operations role mm-hmm. at yeah. Raytheon Technologies, actually, following graduation. So love to have you on board. Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, for the listener, Sandy is on the boards of director at a number of companies, uh, including Raytheon Technologies. Going back to this idea of manufacturing, what is one thing that we will need to focus on then to maintain that technological advantage to bring our Mm -hmm. missile defense, surface missile defense capabilities up Mm -hmm. to match Chinese uh, anti-surface warfare and also ensure that they can't be taking our innovation from us as they have time and time again in the past? Well, there's a lot packed in that question. Uh, And I would say that the most important thing is the the biggest thing, and that is... um, uh, taking a hard look at how we educate our own people. Uh, we do have the, the best higher education system in the world, Notre Dame being part of that, but I'm not so sure that we're competing well in the you know primary and secondary school education. So we mm-hmm. could really put some resources in there. A lot of the money in this country is controlled by older people who have grandkids, but you know it's not as personal. Let's get our education system going. And as part mm-hmm. of that, let's make sure we're doing a lot of good work in, in STEM. A lot of good programs out there, women in STEM, STEM across the board and science, technology, engineering, and math. And with that as your seed corn, now you can do the kinds of things that we need to do in order to compete effectively economically against China and other countries in the world. Now, to a sp- your specific question, there's a lot you can do to, to make yourself able to defend yourself better from, let's say, missile attacks and that sort of thing. You know, our current method is kind of kinetic, missiles versus missiles. Yeah. But the cost curve for that gets pretty tough because the defending missiles are really sophisticated. They have to be and really expensive. And you're shooting you know, like a $10 million missile against a $500,000 missile that's coming in to hit you. So, so one of the most promising areas, of course, is directed energy. And when people think of directed energy, the first they think, thing they think of is lasers. But lasers have some, some flaws that make it difficult to use them. For one thing, uh, we're not necessarily where we'd like to be in terms of power generation from lasers. Mm-hmm. Another thing is, is a laser requires dwell time. I have to stick that laser on a target for a number of seconds before it actually burns through and kills the thing. Right. And that means you can only shoot one target at a time. The other thing is they don't work so well in bad weather. You know, clouds are something the earth has, right? <clears throat> so uh, if you look at high-powered microwaves, particularly really, really high-powered microwaves, there's a lot of potential there for augmenting the kinetic missile defenses that we have in terms of being able to defend against those those kinds of threats in, in which you basically fry the inside of the missile. Yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting points you made there. Uh, I like how you brought up the primary and secondary education point uh, in STEM education in general. I know, you know, STEM education is is kind of something that that I personally aspire to hopefully somehow get involved in throughout my career, but also just in light of some of the data that's been released in the last week or so on how the pandemic impacted mm-hmm. primary education sure. testing scores. Yeah, uh, how do we recover from that? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's very very interesting questions to consider and and challenges that need to be addressed. So I, I like how you put that, especially in mm-hmm. context of some of these great power competitions we're facing with. The other thing sure. that I like you talked about there is you know, the technology and such. And this is kind of a wrap-up question regarding both Russia and China and our conversations on that. You've spent some of your military career focused on and writing about how we need to innovate, you know, in the military and and um, in industry to, to maintain our, our security. What is one emerging weapons technology that will shape the face of great power competition uh, for the United States moving forward in the 21st century? Is it hypersonics? 
Is it AI? Is it this missile defense uh, directed energy technologies? You know, it's all three. And then you can throw quantum computing on top of that, although that's much further out uh, in terms of its techn technological readiness. It's just not there yet. Hypersonics are interesting. It's just it's a it's a missile that just goes a lot faster, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it's harder to shoot down. So yeah, okay, that's important. And we'll compete there. We're a little behind now, but we're rapidly catching up. I think the real innovation, not only on the military side, but elsewhere, is through artificial intelligence. We're just now beginning to tap into that as a military. And obviously, unlike other countries like Russia and China, we will try to approach using artificial intelligence ethically. And so, you know, we're putting some some pretty important rumble strips on the road, you know, to make sure that we're using that in a way that we as a free democracy with our values believe in. And it's not going to take the place of humans. It's going to augment humans' ability to decide until, you know, it really gets highly advanced. But right now, its principal benefit is, is making it so that humans can make much better decisions, whether it's in a cockpit or whether it's in a command center or you know what have you that that is something that we're going to be seeing a lot more of yeah that's very encouraging to hear your comment on ethics so shifting gears again as we kind of head towards the wrap up of our discussion you've held many important and pressure packed leadership roles across military public academic and business organizations i'd be remiss if i didn't try to pick your brain a little bit um, but i'd be remiss if i didn't try to ask um, about you know good leadership advice that you have amidst <laughs> this volatile world we live in and kind of on that note, just a very straightforward question. What are three good habits that you think every leader should build? I'm going to, I'm going to answer that in a slightly different way. And that um, uh, I, I have always believed that learning about leadership is first of all, something that companies don't really stress very much. They just sort of think you learn it by osmosis, hmm. but it's really, it's really something that is a lifelong learning thing that you have to do. And, I, and to this day, I learn leadership lessons every day. So the way you do that is there are sort of three things you have to do. One is you have to educate yourself, which means reading. And you can read books about leadership, or you can read books about leaders and kind of distill lessons from those books about what worked, what didn't work, and what were the characteristics of these good or not so good leaders. The second thing you have to do is observe. And one of the things that will happen to you as young people is you will work for leaders. And some of those leaders are going to be good leaders and some of them aren't going to be good leaders. It's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. And you can learn from both of them. You know, what would I not do or what would I do? The thing that I, I caution young people on when you get to your first job, you're all fresh and new. And it's like, I'm psyched, man. I'm out here in the real world. You know, I'm doing all this stuff. And after about two or three years, and remember this, after about two or three years, you're going to start seeing warts in the system. And, and you're going to go, well, well, this sucks. You know, my leaders aren't that great and they're not sensitive to what I really, well, just understand that every organization has that. And you as a young person, rather than being the person whining and complaining about it, write down those things you see <laughs> that you want to change when you get a chance to change things. So that's the observation piece. And then the last thing is uh, we have a saying in the military, run to the sound of the guns. If you're ever offered an opportunity to lead something, seize that opportunity particularly while you're in school, because it's free. You, you get this priceless experience about you know, how what works and what doesn't work in your own mind and how you can get build your confidence as a leader. And you're in this nice crucible called Notre Dame. When you go out into the real world, you're going to get an opportunity to do that for sure. So it's, it's about uh, study, observation, and running to the sound of the guns. Now, I will also add, sorry for the length of the answer. I have a book coming out in April. It's called Sailing Upwind. 
that is a memoir of my career, but it also I've woven into there my beliefs about leadership. I believe that it's important for anybody, especially young people, to have some kind of a framework in your mind on which you can hang the leadership lessons that you learn. My framework consists of five sort of pillars. And one of those is leading yourself. Another is leading people, both individuals and generations. Another is leading organizations. Another is leading execution, making things happen. And then last is leading change. And there are threads underneath all four or all five of those pillars that are really, really important. And I'll just pick one out. And it's the very first one under leading yourself. And that is growing in your own character, humility, uh, courage, and integrity. Genuine humility, not fake humility, not just physical courage, but moral courage, always doing the difficult right thing rather than the easy mm -hmm. wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And integrity, those things are things that when you're a leader, the people working for you pick up on really quickly. They see through it very quickly. And if, if you don't have those traits, you're going to fail. Uh, yeah, wise words for sure. And especially in this crazy busy <clears throat> world that people will always find themselves in. Yep. So you're the co-host um, of your own podcast series, as I sort of teased at the beginning when I introduced you, uh, alongside retired astronaut, Dr. Sandra Magnus. It's called The Adrenaline Zone. And I'll be honest, when I was trying to think of titles for this podcast episode, I my first one was, oh, advice from The Adrenaline Zone. And then I went, no, I'm just stealing from him. I got to not do that. I got to do something more original than that. But anyway, one question you two often ask guests during your episodes is about rituals they undertake to manage stressful situations in their career fields and lives. Mm -hmm. How have your own rituals to promote self-well-being evolved over time? Yeah, I think you're asking a really important question about stress. I think in young people, it's documented that the level of stress has increased. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Social mm -hmm. media, people getting bullied on social media. You guys are doing more than, than I ever did as, in my generation at school. I mean, you're very, very busy and under a lot of pressure. So it's easy to let the stress kind of get to you and rule your life. And you have to learn to control that. As a, a naval aviator, we are taught that if you're trying to land an airplane on the back of an aircraft carrier at night and it's cloudy and it's dark and the deck's moving, you don't have time to be thinking about the health of your parents or mm -hmm. your financial situation or your relationship or your own health. You've got to find a way to put that in a little box and put it in the corner and then concentrate on what you're doing. And then when the time is right, go ahead and open up that box and deal with the problems. But don't let them rule you. Don't let them gnaw at you and create unnecessary stress in your life. And then along with that are building really, really good habits. Uh, good habits are hard to build and they're easy to break, right? But you can find ways to trick yourself into building really good habits. Like I'm going to do 20 push-ups before I get in the shower in the morning. I'm just going to do it. And I'm, I'm going to feel guilty if I forget. So getting a lot of sleep, something that young people struggle with, I think. Mm -hmm. Force yourself to get sleep. Eating right most of the time. Sometimes it's okay to go crazy, but you know, eating right. And then exercising. I tried to exercise a decent bit my whole life. I wasn't going to be a stellar athlete, but I was always in decent physical condition. All those things kind of contribute to you just being able to tell stress to go away. Mm -hmm. You know, just I'm not going to let you win this. I'm going to conquer stress. I'm just going to deal with my problems up front. And Buddha had a great saying that says the source of man's misery is his desire so think about that hmm. you know, it's almost like the source of man's stress is is his desire and when i say man i mean you know men and women right so just control it 
determine that you are going to control the stress and you'd be surprised how effective you can be. Yeah. Those little victories for sure. That's something, you know, I often have to remind myself just the little things that celebrating those helps offset some of the greater longer term stress that's often out of control. So that's really great advice. And that's a great point to wrap up our conversation. I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me today, share some of your experiences from your military career, provide some insights on you know where we stand in the 21st century when we're staring up against Russia and China, um, and then just sharing advice for leaders. I think that's really something that you've done a really good job of, of providing the listener and providing me through our conversation. So I, I really, really appreciate uh, your time and your service to our country, to organizations, both private, public, uh, both during and after your time in the military. But I really appreciate your time and all that you've done. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be with you. I encourage you and your listeners. We're counting on your generation to step up and keep this country going or maybe get it back on track or whatever you think. Mm -hmm. uh, it's You guys are going to own this pretty soon. And then the last thing I'll say is go Irish. Yeah, go Irish. There you go. <laughs> If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under sample swap. <laughs>